Well, good morning, church family. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight. We are in a series that we've been calling Free at Last, and we've been walking through uh, the, the, this chapter eight of Romans. Uh, this chapter, in my opinion, is the greatest chapter in all of scripture. And uh, I think what it does is it provides us a breathtaking view of the Christian life and uh, really provides a tremendous amount of, of assurance for us as Christians. And so the problem is, I think so many Christians don't really realize the reality of what Romans 8 teaches. I think a lot of Christians fail to grasp the liberty, uh, the security, and the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. And so I think a great illustration of this, a great story of this, is a story about a man named Peter Deneka. Peter was a Russian immigrant uh, to the United States. He fled Russia during the Communist Revolution in 1911. And uh, he landed in Chicago and, and shortly after his arrival to Chicago, he committed his life to Christ. And then he enrolled in Moody Bible Institute. And then after graduation, uh, God used him in a powerful way to reach many people for Christ. And Peter Deneka shares a real interesting story of, of his trip from Russia to the United States on a boat. So his parents sacrificed greatly to purchase him a ticket to get on a boat and come to the United States. And so on the first day that he got on the ship, he had absolutely no money to his name. And uh, he only had a knapsack with a few clothes, a few clothing, uh, pieces of clothing in it. And uh, his mom at the very last minute slipped in a crusty old loaf piece of bread in, in his knapsack so that he could have something to eat while he was on the ship. And so as the voyage began, he would often go down to the dining room and watch the passengers eat these glorious meals. As he watched on, he longed to be able to partake uh, in these meals himself. And so after a couple of days of this, some of the crew members noticed uh, Peter watching and observing uh, the mealtime hours. And, and uh, one of the crew members went up to him and said that, hey, if if you'd be interested in doing some work for me, then I'll share some of my food with you. And so the interesting thing about that is the crew did not eat the same food as the passengers did. The crew were often given just measly portions of gruel, but from Peter's standpoint, it was much better to eat gruel than, than moldy bread. So he, he took advantage of that opportunity. And so all throughout the voyage, he worked uh, on the ship uh, with the other crew members and, and had three meals a day of gruel. But what Peter Deneka shared is this, that it was on the very last day as they were pulling into port in the United States that he finally realized that his ticket included three full meals a day provided uh, in the dining hall. He had no idea. And so I share that story with you, church, because I think it's a great illustration of what a lot of Christians do, that they, it really does describe their journey with Christ, that they receive Christ in their life, their, their ticket to heaven, so to speak, uh, but they fail to realize the benefits that are included in that ticket. And so what Romans 8 really is, is a description of all of the benefits that, that we have as Christians because of Jesus Christ because of our salvation. And really what Romans 8 points to is the greatest joy in the Christian life. And this is the kind of joy that will enable you to face any challenge, any difficulty in your life without crumbling or without sinking. 
It's, it's this kind of joy that is really an assurance and a, a certainty of the love of God in your life. That, that not only does God love you now, but God will love you forever. That's what we see in Romans, in Romans chapter eight, that, that the love that God has for you as a believer is unshakable. That this, this love is so incredible that nothing can separate you from it. And so really this is, this is assurance. This is what is called the doctrine of assurance. And so that's what we see described in Romans eight. Now there are two parts of this assurance. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, God loves you, first of all, in spite of the bad stuff inside of you. And secondly, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, God loves you in spite of the bad stuff happening all around you. All right, so think about this. You know, when there's bad stuff coming out of us, when we say things we know we shouldn't say, and we do things we know we shouldn't do, there are a number of times when we we kind of think to ourselves, how could I do that? Where did that even come from? And, and, and if we make some wrong choices, it's, it's easy to come to that place of thinking, well, because of what I've done, God could never love me. And I think the question is, what does Romans 8 say to that? And Romans 8 says this, who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? It is God who justifies. And so you see that assurance of God's love, even with bad stuff in us. But we also see the assurance of God's love for us, even when there's bad stuff outside of us, happening all around us. In fact, that's what Paul describes in verses 35 and 36. He, he lists all of the bad things that can happen on the outside. He talks about, he, he talks about tribulation and and distress and persecution and danger and the sword. He talks about all of these things that really describe the bad things that can happen to us. And I think the very thought that comes to our mind when bad things start happening to us is, God, could, God must not love me or else all of these bad things would not be happening. And so what we see in Romans 8, the message of Romans 8 is this, that God loves you in Jesus Christ in spite of the bad things in you and in spite of the bad things swirling around you. That's the point of Romans 8. And it is absolutely breathtaking when you really begin to see it and internalize it and apply it to your life. And so what I wanna do before we read the passage we're gonna look at this morning, I wanna just set it up this way because I want you to notice when we read the passage. Romans 8 ends with a series of rhetorical questions. And I think the purpose of these rhetorical questions really is to beat out of us uh, any, any unbelief that might remain in us, that we are saved by grace through faith and that we are free to live from fear. We are absolutely been set free uh, from fear. And so I think, I think the purpose of these questions, these recurrence of these questions is really to chase out any kind of doubt that we would have that we have been uh, saved by grace through faith. In fact, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see a, a logic, a very intense, a very uh, relentless and incredible logic that unfolds right before our eyes. In fact, uh, the, the great pastor David Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is, Romans 8 is really a logic on fire. And the purpose of these questions that lead to this logic 
is to get us to think. The Apostle Paul wants us to think. And I don't know about you, but so many times when I am overwhelmed, I tend to stop thinking. When I get worried or anxious or distressed in some way, I tend to stop thinking. When I, when I start to feel guilty, I, I tend to stop thinking about it. And what the Apostle Paul really wants us to do is to think about what Jesus has done for us. And so he lays out a series of questions and a series of truths for us that we can really build our life on. So let's read verses 31 through 39. The Apostle Paul says this, what, sh what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what he does is he raises these series of questions because he wants us to think. And I think what we see in this passage are four unanswerable questions that lead to four unshakable assurances. That's what we see in this passage, four unshakable assurances. Let me, let me just give, give them to you real quick. If I'm in Christ, God, God is my sovereign protector. God is my sovereign protector, number, number one. Number two, if I'm in Christ, God is my supreme provider. Number three, if I'm in Christ, God is my real redeemer. And number four, if I'm in Christ, God is my sustaining preserver. So he's my protector, my provider, he's my redeemer and preserver. So let's look at the first one. God is my sovereign protector. Look with me at, at verse 31. He raises this very first question and he asks it like this. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So the question really uh, is, is an unanswerable question because you know that if God is for you, then no one can oppose you. No one can be against you. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this, that God is your protector. He is your sovereign protector. Now, this is really important uh, to understand. He is not saying that no one is ever going to oppose you. He's not saying that you're never going to have uh, an enemy. You're never going to have an adversary. In fact, he lists in verse 35 and 36, a number of oppositions that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. And so he's not saying we're never gonna have opposition. What he's saying is this, that no one who opposes us is going to prevent the purposes of God from being fulfilled in my life. That's what he's saying. That there is nothing 
no opposition, no adversary. There is nothing that they can do to thwart the purposes of God for my life. That's what he's saying. You see, the truth is, I know that there are many of you watching right now where you're experiencing a great deal of opposition. You have to parent a very difficult child. You're, you're married to a very critical spouse. You uh, work for a very demanding boss. You're struggling with an addiction. You're dealing with, with a sickness in your own body that's very, very challenging. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to see, what Romans 8 points to, the assurance that we have in this is so incredible, it's this. That yes, the opposition that you are experiencing, the struggles and the difficulties that you're going through right now are huge, they're big. But the good news of the gospel is this, God is bigger. God is bigger than any opposition you may experience. He's bigger than any adversary that may set themselves up against you. He's bigger than any problem that you may go through. God is bigger and his purposes for you are going to prevail. That's what Romans 8 reminds us of, that God is bigger and stronger than anything that we go through. Now, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my time growing up as a kid. You know, 40, 50 years ago, growing up as a kid was very different than growing up as a kid today. I, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I never wore a, a helmet when I rode my bicycle. I, I, I never wore my seatbelt when I was in the car. Uh, I oftentimes would go play in the neighborhood and, and wouldn't come home until well after dark with my parents not knowing where I was. And I would frequently um, play in the street as the mosquito truck would swing by and, and spray our neighborhood. I did all of those things with an absolute confidence that I was never in danger. I, was, I had nothing to be afraid of except for one thing. His name was Bobby O'Neill. And Bobby O'Neill was uh, a kid in my neighborhood. He was a couple years older than me. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. And he was really mean. And he was a bully to me in my neighborhood. And he was the only thing that I was ever afraid of really growing up in, in my neighborhood. And one day he, he threatened me in a one-on-one -on -one conversation that I had with him. He threatened me and scared me to death. And I just ran home as quickly as I could. Now, I have two older brothers, and when my brothers saw me uh, walk into the house, they saw that I was kind of sad, and they asked me, Scott, hey, what, what's going on? What's wrong? And so I told them about Bobby O'Neill and how he threatened me that day and scared me to death. And my brothers looked at me and said, Scott, don't worry about it. We'll take care of Bobby O'Neill. And they ran out of the house. Now, I'll tell you, I don't know what my brother said to Bobby that day. I don't know what they did to Bobby that day, but I do know this that I never felt fearful of Bobby O'Neill ever again. I never saw him again. I don't know what happened to him because my brothers took care of the threat. And I think that's the bottom line for what the Apostle Paul is saying, for the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ that God is our sovereign protector, that through Jesus, he is stronger, he is greater than any problem, any opposition that I might be able to encounter. He is my sovereign protector. But, but he mentions a second assurance, unshakable assurance, right in verse 32, and that is this, that God is my supreme provider. God is my supreme provider. Look at what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, what he's talking about there is how God provides his children with everything that they need. In fact, he, he talks about God giving us all things. Now, it's interesting that he could, have, he could have talked about and said it this way, will God give us all things? That could have been the way he phrased the question. And we would respond by thinking, well, you know, there's so many things that I need. How can I be really certain that God will give us all things? See, that's what we would have thought if he had said it that way. But he, but he raises it in such a way as to paint the picture of the certainty that we have of God's provision. He phrases it like this, that he who that did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, what he's pointing to is this, that God is our provider. And he is, he's making the case that if God gave up his son, he, he will give us all things. Because the harder thing is the giving up of the son. And if he's done the harder thing, the more difficult thing, the more challenging thing in giving up his son, then it is a slam dunk that God will provide us with everything we need in life. That is exactly what he's saying. He is actually arguing from greater to lesser. That if God has come through and, and given up his son, God will come through and give us everything we, we need, everything else that we need. I love what Pastor John Piper says about this uh, this particular passage, he says this, the reason God sparing not his own son is the greater thing is that God loved his son infinitely. His son didn't, didn't deserve to be killed. His son was worthy of worship by every creature, not spitting and whipping and scorn and torture. To hand over his beloved son was the incomparably great thing. The reason for this is the immensity of God's love for his son. This is what made, made it so unlikely that God would hand him over. And yet God did it. And in doing it, he showed that he most certainly would do all the other things. All would be easy by comparison to give all things to the people for whom he gave his son. Man, what a glorious, what a glorious truth that is, that God sacrificed his son to redeem you and I, and then he will give us all that we need for life and godliness. What a tremendous assurance that we have. And I think, I think what this passage is really challenging us to do is think about it. Just think about it. If God has invested so much in you, how will he not give you everything that you need to carry out his will? If God rescued you from sin and hell and death, why would he turn his back on you now and not help you in your marriage? If God gave you the Holy Spirit, why would he withhold wisdom from you? The wisdom that you need in parenting the children that he gave you. See, it just doesn't make sense. And that's what he wants us to see. Don't doubt his love. You can have an assurance that he will provide everything that you need uh, for whatever it is that you face because he is your supreme provider. God has more invested in you than you do. 
And so that means he's not going to turn his back on you. Now, some people will push back and say, well, Scott, it often seems like God doesn't provide for me. Or at the very least, it seems like he's very slow to, prov to provide for us. And the thing that I would say to that is this, God is never slow. He's always right on time. And I think the truth is this. I think sometimes you and I are slow to trust him. You and I are slow to really obey him. You and I are slow sometimes to to really surrender to him. And I think you just have to make a decision. You've got to make a choice to surrender those things into your life over to him and to believe that God will provide and God will move in accordance with that faith. That's what he's saying. God is our sovereign protector and he is also our supreme provider. But there's a third assurance, unshakable assurance that we see right in this text and that is this, that God is my real redeemer. Look with me at verse 33. Look at how uh, Paul says it. He says it this way, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He says, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? He says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. What he's talking about here is the redemption that comes through Jesus' death for us. He's talking about, he's raising this whole question of who can bring a charge against you? Who can bring an accusation against you? Who can level condemnation on you and on your life? And so now the point that he wants, that he's really wants us to see is this. We know that there are people in this world that will bring condemnation to us. We do know that there are people that will bring accusations and charges against us. That's just part of the world that we live in. But what he's saying is this. He's saying that those charges that other people bring against us really don't carry any weight. The charges, the condemnations that other people would issue towards us are to no avail. They carry no weight at all. Why? Not because we're perfect, but because the penalty for our sin has already been paid. So the charges have been dropped. Jesus lived the life that you and I were supposed to live and he died the death. He paid the penalty you and I were supposed to pay. And so the result of that is this, that God has brought no charges against us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our real redeemer. And I think the apostle Paul is saying this because he knows that Christians struggle with sin. He knows that our consciences are very much alive, in some case, very, very insecure, very, very sensitive. And what he's trying to do is to help us see you don't move in and out of condemnation in your relationship with God because it is God who has justified you. It is God who has made you right with him. Now, I know that uh, some people out there will kind of, you know, share a, a struggle that they often have. And it's, it's really with something that they've done in the past. And, and uh, as a pastor, I've heard this so many times and people will say it like this. They'll say, well, I know, I know that God has forgiven me. The problem is I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. And so really the person that's doing the accusing is you. You're accusing yourself. You're living in self-condemnation. 
But I want you to think about this whole concept that you know that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. What you're saying is this, that God has his standard and you've met that standard, but you have a higher standard than even God's. And that standard is more important. That's the standard you can't, you can't measure and keep up with. And so really what you're saying is this, that through meeting your own standard, you're gonna be able to make yourself right with God by what you do or by what you avoid doing in the future. And see, the answer to that is this, it's really idolatry. It's really saying that you have God in your life and he's forgiven you, but there's this other standard in your life that's more important. And what you really need to do is make Jesus the most important person in your life. And that's when you experience the redemption and the grace and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, the bottom line is make God your Lord. Let him be first in your life above all other things. So God is your protector. He is your provider. He is your redeemer. And lastly, he is your sustaining preserver. Look with me at verse 35. Notice what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? See, he's, he's raising this question. Is there anything that can drive a wedge between you and God's love for you? And the answer is this, absolutely not. There's nothing that can drive a wedge between you and the love of God that, that he has for you. And he, he lists these a number of things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and the sword. He lists all of these things that he has been through himself. He's not really describing what he thinks the Roman Christians are struggling with. He's really talking about a list of things that he has experienced firsthand. And what he's saying is this, none of those things can separate you from the love that God has for you. Not one of those things, not at all. In fact, he says it like this in verse 37, he says this, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that, we are more than conquerors. Now, the question that I had as I was looking at this is what exactly is more than a conqueror really mean? What is more than a conqueror? Well, I love what John Piper again says about this. He, he says it this way. He says a conqueror is a, is a person who will defeat their enemy. That's a person who gains the victory in any conflict. But if you're more than a conqueror, Piper says, you not only defeat your enemy, you subjugate them. You, you make them your slave. You make them your servant. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage is this, that God has not only defeated the pain and the suffering and the adversities in your life, but God takes the pain and the suffering and the adversities in life, the trials and the difficulties, and he uses them to accomplish his good purposes for you and for me. That's what he means by subjugate them. God accomplishes our glory, our good, by using those, those difficulties and adversities in our life, by turning them around for good. I, I love how uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 states it, uh, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us 
and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's an amazing thing. In other words, what he's saying is this, that what man intends for evil for us, God can turn around and use it for good. It's like that evil is turned around and it serves God's godly purposes in our lives. That's what he's saying. What a, what a tremendous assurance that we have that God is our sustaining preserver. Now, if you're not already convinced of this, he closes really with a kind of a, um, a climax here in chapter eight. Let me, let me just read to you verses 38 and 39 because this is, this is absolutely tremendous. He says this, for I am sure, I am confident, I am rock solid certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that is an amazing statement. That's an amazing couple of statements that he makes. What he does is he lists out a series of security threats, really, in pairs. And what he says is this. He says, neither death nor life. Like death can't even separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, God uses death to bring us closer to, him, to himself. And that there's nothing in life that can separate us from God's love. And then he goes on to say, nor angels, nor rulers. In other words, nor good angels or bad angels, nor angels, nor demons. That, that, that entities in the spirit world can't even separate us from the love of Christ. He goes on to say, nor things present, nor things to come. So the pandemic that we're in, and hopefully one day soon, we're going to be coming out of the pandemic completely. But even if we go into the pandemic more seriously, it doesn't matter because it can't separate us from the love of Christ. And then he mentions powers. This is the only one that is not paired up with anything. I think you can make a case that he's referring to Satan or even the Antichrist, that, that even Satan can't separate us from the love of Christ. And then he closes with this, nor height nor depth. Nothing in the sky, nothing in the universe, nothing in the depths of the earth can even separate us from the love of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He is, he is giving us the rock solid assurance of the love that Jesus has for us, not only today, but for all of eternity. Now, let me just finish up by saying this. Some of you might be thinking, well, Scott, can't my sin separate me from the love of Christ? I mean, can I just do a series of things that are so evil and so wrong and then that separate me from the love of Christ? Well, the answer to that is this. The truth of the gospel is that God has set his love on his sons and daughters. That God has poured his love into your life. And it's not because you were good or you were righteous or you were respectable in some way or you were, you were gifted and talented. That's not why he loves you. He loves you, the Bible says, just because he loves you. So if you were to ask God, why do you love me? He would say, just because I love you. God would give you a circular argument. He would say, I love you just because I love you. Now, the truth of the matter is this. When you think about it, Jesus had every opportunity to separate himself from all of us. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, he was literally sweating drops of blood as he was contemplating what he was about to do. He didn't wanna do it. He didn't wanna be separated from a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. And he had every opportunity to walk away that night, to be separated from us, but he didn't do it. 
When he was arrested, he was handed over to the religious leaders. He was handed over to the Romans for, for seven and eight trials that occurred that next morning. They put a bag over his head. They, they struck him with their fists. They, they told him to prophesy and to tell them who hit him. They accused him. They spit in his face. They tore his clothes. He had every opportunity to separate himself from you and me, but he didn't do it. Finally, they, they placed him on the cross. They crucified him. The crowds made fun of him. They cursed at him. They told him, you know, you said you could save others, but you can't even save yourself. Why don't you come down from that cross? You see, Jesus had every single opportunity to separate himself from us and to come down and to walk away from the whole thing, but he didn't do it. And church family, what I'm trying to tell you is this. If you're in, if you're in Christ, if he, didn't, if he didn't separate himself from you then, he's not gonna separate himself from you now. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. And so here's the question I wanna leave you with. Do you have the assurance of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Do you know that God is your provider, your protector, your redeemer, and your preserver? Do you know that? Because it is the will of God for you to have the witness of the Spirit to give you that assurance that you are children of God. Oftentimes, Christians lack assurance in their life because they're living in unconfessed sin. And so how do you gain that assurance? Well, very simply, you confess your sins and God is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, what you need to do is, is just recommit yourself to Christ and to follow him. But what if you're listening today and you know you don't have an assurance and you know you're not a Christian? Well, the thing that I would say is this, the only way to have assurance is to become a Christian. What you need to do is admit your need for a savior, believe that Jesus died for you on the cross in your place and commit your life to following him. In fact, I wanna invite you to pray this prayer with me right now if you would like to receive Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins, that in you, I can be free from condemnation and accusation. And so God, thank you for taking my place on that cross so that I could be free, so that I could be forgiven. I ask you to come into my life. I commit myself to following you. Put your spirit in me so that I may follow you all the days of my life. We thank you for this, God, in Jesus' name.